I'm Tiffany Patton, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media, where we get to dive deep into some of the most interesting books on food, politics, and culture with the authors themselves. This month, we are focusing on Seeds, Seeds of Resistance, to be exact, by Mark Shapiro. Seeds, these tiny little things, are the source of so much life in our world. Throughout the course of history, they've gone from a commonly shared resource to intellectual property. And we are asking ourselves, how did this happen? And what does this privatization mean for our farmers, our food supply, and our climate? Those questions will be answered today by Mark Shapiro, investigative journalist and author of Seeds of Resistance, and Kristen Leach, Berkeley Food Institute changemaker, seed saver, and farmer at Namu Farm. Today's episode is recorded live at the San Francisco Ferry Building in partnership with the Center for Urban Education and Sustainable Agriculture as part of their new multifaceted education project, The Food Change. Kristen and Mark and everyone else here today, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So you two came to Seeds in different ways. Kristen, you're a farmer who came into seed saving, and Mark, you're an investigative journalist. Kristen, um, can you share your path with us to farming and then to seed saving? Sure. Well, I had worked on farms just for a long time when I was younger, just as a farmhand, and I liked the labor of it. I liked being around plants, but it wasn't until I was in my kind of mid-20s that I thought about, you know, a little bit about my heritage, and I found the Kitazawa Seed Catalog, and when I saw that catalog, it just felt like a story that I had been really yearning for through a lot of my childhood. And it almost kind of read like this secret decoder for me, where I was like, I basically went through and I just circled everything that said it was Korean, like Korean radish, Korean perilla, Korean mustard. I was like, oh, this is great. And so I just started growing all of those different things. And then I think just in getting to know those plants, like I've felt something so personal and I felt like kind of just like this way back that these plants were almost like these storytellers um, sharing something with me that I just hadn't had like a human tell me before. So I think just for that like it developed this kind of deeper sense of of care and what I felt like I was invited into in terms of this bigger more vast story of where I came from and what type of you know ancestor I wanted to be and just to share, Kristen was kind enough to bring me a <laughs> Korean perilla plant, or gandip, which I'm going to give to my mom because she loves gandip. <laughs> um, so, Mark, what was the aha moment for you that drew you to seeds? First of all, I want to say it's incredible to hear Kristen describe her journey. She's a farmer. I'm an investigative reporter, so <laughs> there is a difference. <laughs> and, uh, but to hear you talk about, and this was not planned, but to hear you talk about seeing seeds with stories to tell. It took me several years to do this book, and I realized as I was doing it that I was actually looking for the stories that seeds tell us. And actually that you, 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 you look inside a seed, and it's like if they were bigger, it'd be like looking at tree rings. And in a sense, tree rings tell you all the conditions that a tree has gone through over many, many, many uh, centuries, if not uh, millennia. And I think seeds tell us stories in different ways about the conditions that they evolve in and how they adapt to those conditions. The last book I wrote was on climate change and the disruptions that climate change were causing to the earth. And then I saw how much more basic can you get 
when you talk about disruption to the earth than seeds. Seeds are the primal source of all life on the planet. It is basically everything comes from seeds. And so as someone who is deeply concerned about and thinks about ecological forces and ecological health and ecological balance, I was drawn to seeds because I thought you couldn't get to anything more fundamental. I mean, so seeds have been around for a long time. And so first, to try to understand why seeds are so important, mm -hmm. I thought, is, is fundamental. And it was actually an education for me. I think what drove me is I realized, uh, on the one hand, my investigative reporting hat was on, which has meant I looked into the corporate consolidation mm -hmm. in the seed industry. And then I realized in order to really understand why that's so significant and why it should be an area of concern, is to understand the nature of biodiversity, mm -hmm. why biodiversity is so central to this healthy system. And in, and in some ways, I ended up writing a book about ecology, too, which is, which is essentially the patterns that are on the earth. So um, that's perhaps a long explanation as to what drew me, drove me <laughs> into seeds. Well, speaking of biodiversity, so it's been steadily decreasing recently, and it's really quite sad to see that there's, I feel like there's few things more destructive than human greed. What are some of the dangers of this decreasing biodiversity, especially in this time of rapid climate change? First of all, it should always be a concern when there's diminishing uh, biodiversity. So that has been something that's been going on now for at least 100 years. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds of the seeds that were on the earth in 1900 are no longer here. So in a sense, what we're talking about is who is going to have access to the one-third of seeds that remain from 118, 19 years ago. So that's just broadly a concern about the ecological health of the planet. Now we have climate change. Not, not now. The last 25 years we've become aware of climate change and the ways in which climatic shifts are disrupting conditions on the earth and particularly acutely disrupting those conditions in areas where food is grown. And so one of the main reasons I think we need to be concerned about the loss of biodiversity at this time and specifically is that in order to respond to these highly volatile conditions, we need a broad variety of seeds to actually be able to respond to these conditions. And it's a lot of what I write about in this book is the importance of biodiversity in order to have an agriculture that can actually survive and thrive in this highly volatile time. Yeah, I mean, I would say the same thing in terms of like when I started my farm, it was with this idea that we needed a lot more strategies in our toolkit about how small scale farming would weather climate change and all these different scenarios and who's mostly impacted when you look at it globally, like who has already climate change kind of come home for. Mm -hmm. And so I think, yeah, like you're saying, there's an older story where those strategies were really vast in terms of the ways we could weather unpredictable weather. Uh, which is just really comes part and parcel with being a farmer. I think as a seed saver, something that I also just want to stress is just I think we understand the threats to biodiversity in this really scientific way. Like we hear about Svalbard and we hear about Vavilov and these heroes who've protected this certain type of biodiversity. But that's also been protected by peasants globally. That's been protected by small-scale farmers and women farmers and so I think, too, and to the importance of storytelling, it's also about acknowledging these other narratives of who has stewarded those seeds 
And to me, there's like a zeitgeist now about acknowledging the really dire straits we're in when it comes to how we've let those genetics get winnowed away and what that means for our farming industry and food and society in general. I would also just be curious about always bringing into the conversation like how democratic the processes are of protecting that biodiversity, who has typically gotten to be the gatekeepers of that biodiversity, and that to a certain extent that biodiversity existed because cultural diversity really bloomed. So you have regional food cultures and you have the ways that people's love for these plants, loves for one another, the food cultures that were emerging, created this vast set of genetics that were like suited for different things, suited for different regions. And as those things have bottlenecked, it also means this erasure of whose stories get to continue to be told. And so I think that that's part of the problem of the strategy of being like, let's just bank these seeds fall barred. Let's put it under like feet of ice in case of a doomsday scenario. And I'm like, we're kind of in that doomsday scenario. We need those plants to be living and learning and sharing with us their, you know, their strategies. They're way more adaptive and noble and dignified than we are. And so I think as there's been more conversation about heirlooms, even just thinking about hearing over the past couple of years, like, oh, Carolina Gold Rice, it's something that now so many people know. It's on television. You have these champions of it. But as much as we should be concerned about Carolina gold rice, we should also care about like the Gullah Geechee people and like, right. you know, these civilizations being also really impacted by that violence. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So when we're talking about in this time of increasing climate change, I feel like there's this word that's very buzzy right now, which is resilience. And the title of your book is called Seeds of Resistance. And with climate change and also the political climate, like we hear resilience and resistance a lot. What do these words mean to you? They are kind of fundamental to our understanding of how we're going to navigate through this and to realize that the patterns that, that, that essentially have sustained this beautiful organism are really getting significantly disrupted by climatic shifts. We've never seen these levels of volatility in recorded history. And so the question is, how do we respond to those conditions? What is resilient to those conditions? What, what, what is actually going to be able to survive or to be able to kind of navigate and adapt those conditions? While, of course, trying to slow down these accelerating impacts. What it meant to me, and in some ways I felt like I went on a journey in, in, in writing this book in a um, search for the seeds that are actually capable of showing resilience in the face of these dramatic shifts which means everything from like farmers like Kristen who are doing amazing work in trying to sustain these varieties which are capable of responding to stress. It also means going to native communities who have been growing food for thousands of years right here in, in North America and have a lot to teach us about how to create a resilient food system. I think resilience is a word that we actually have to get pretty used to ecologically speaking. And then I, of course, titled the book Seeds of Resistance because I couldn't resist that double entendre. <laughs> it's like, I can't believe nobody's used this. <laughs> Kristen, what do those words mean to you and how do they uh, impact your work? You know, I think that um, just coming from a production farming background and then shifting to have more seed saving be present on my farm, like it really changes your pace and it changes like this long-term like 
relationship with a plant to kind of let it go through its whole life cycle and make that kind of commitment to it too. Like many seed crops, you let it stay in the field to mature this seed, but long after like you're harvesting from it and it's about this taking turns of just being like, oh, you've been providing this generous gift to me. Now it's my time to take care of you in order to fulfill this bigger purpose. And so I think that learning little bits about that type of reciprocity has meant a lot in terms of just fostering what accountability means to me. And I think that um, for me that just shapes a lot about like what it means in terms of relationship building or what I want my farm to function as. Like I started my farm in a lot of ways because I was like so nervous about what was happening in the world. And I did feel like I cared about farming because it felt like something that would never be not necessary. And it was always a way I could take care of the people around me. So in a lot of ways, it was almost like this lone wolf mentality, like how do I cut the fat in like our system? How do I not make farming about extraction processes? How do I eliminate fossil fuels and all of these things? But really like the thing that I feel like my farm taught me, even though I was going down this dark doomsday prepper wormhole was actually in about like the mutualism of all of that and Mm -hmm. the more I felt like I was watching these plants and then these plants were getting other people excited about the farm and seeing them respond meant that I had this social web around me that felt very different like for farmers sometimes I think like even talking about my distaste for policy (laughs) farmers get wrapped up in like the time the farm bill rolls around about how we can get a bigger slice of that pie But I'm like, I would take the type of community I have over like crop insurance or a subsidy from the government like any day. (laughs) That's real resilience. And it's like, I don't have a savings account. That's maybe not good for resilience as a 30 something year old, you know. (laughs) But I have people that when my truck broke down, they were like, okay, how much is it gonna cost? Like who's your mechanic? We'll go drop off the money. And so I do think about that in terms of just this weird circuitous route of being kind of a misanthrope, loving plants kind of more than people, but then those plants bringing me to the people that I like really needed. You know, if I could just add, I think that's so cool, to, interesting to hear your description. And, you know, you're much closer to the land than I am, and needless to say, but I did think of what the, this concept of resilience as like humans have certain needs in order to sustain resilience in the face of trauma, which Everybody, God forbid, has faced or will face at times in their life, as have I. So I read a lot about the resilience psychology and and kind of resilience theory and resilience, essentially. Well, I needed to because I needed some myself. And um, the deeper I got into seeds and agriculture, I realized that actually many of the same things that humans need to have the strength um, to give them resilience in the face of difficulty are actually similar in a way to what seeds and agricultural systems need. I mean, in a sense, they need, you know, you need a diversity of sources of support, uh, which, is, which, is, which is biodiversity. And you need um, a ground from which you can obtain um, nourishment and minerals. And there are all sorts of corollaries, which I think. We're just plants with more complicated emotions. Yeah, we're just, we're, yeah. can't we photosynthesize. Can yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And we I don't know. <laughs> emotions or photosynthesis. I think yeah, the choice is true. kind of clear. Who's <laughs> winning? <laughs> and we run inside when it's raining. Right. Yeah. <laughs> some, most of us. Some of us. Mm. But mm-hmm. I do like what you're saying about like the physical characteristics yeah. of what you feel like when you're building your own resilience yeah, or when yeah, you feel yeah. depleted. Yeah. 
I think of, um, you know, like my good friend and someone who inspires me, Eileen Suzara, does all this really amazing work in the Filipino community. She's like this brilliant public health thinker and chef and farmer. And we were trying to work on a lot of projects together. And I felt so moved by seeing that it was coming at things from this place of remembering mm -hmm. and that that nourishment was like, I don't know, just like the kind of slight difference between resilience and resistance. There's the things that you just feel like you're antagonistic and up against as an opponent and there's mm -hmm. the things that you can kind of foster from within. And there were so many plants that in just researching these heirloom plants that got lost somewhere in the history of like assimilation for Filipino Americans. And then we looked at them, and there were so many crops that targeted the exact top three public health disparities in terms of like diabetes wow. and hypertension. Mm -hmm. They're like, this is the plant that our ancestors knew all along. Right. Uh, and that was the plant, and you just think of that coexistence and that kind of coevolution, mm -hmm. and then where that got ruptured. And so, I, yeah, I think it's really powerful, like those kind of traditions and how to mend them instead mm -hmm. of just feeling like, oh, certain communities are unhealthy, right. and we know how to fix that. Like eat more kale, you know. <laughs> it's always, I feel like it always goes back to taking someone's diet and taking it out of context and then selling them back certain parts of it that are just unhealthy. I think it was Tunde Wei who said this um, last year at a conference I was at, but he said, capitalism takes your culture and sells it right back to you, which I thought was really powerful and true. <laughs> um, <laughs> can we talk more about the disruption and how privatization has impacted food and farming and farmers? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that just in some of these talks about like what's so exciting about thinking about recapturing some of this biodiversity is that it gives you opportunity to think about like where you're picking something back up instead of learning something new. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. I think it's like not about learning sometimes, it's about remembering and recognition. Right, awesome, thank you. And I think part of the challenge we face now is the corporatization that you referred to is, in a sense, I wanted to figure out what the implications of this accelerating consolidation mm -hmm. of corporate control. I hate, I hate the word control because it's not a fixed situation, but corporate um, attempts to dominate the seed business. Just a quick summation so we understand what we're talking about. In the last 30 years, you've had the top agrochemical companies steadily buying seed companies all across this country and all across the world. And every time that a seed company, a, a agrochemical company bought a seed company, that was a local seed company that was grounded in the local conditions in which crops are grown. All across this country, you had ecological zones. And, and within those ecological zones, you had seed companies that developed seeds that responded to those conditions. And steadily, starting really in the late 1980s, early 1990s, agrochemical companies started buying up those seed companies, taking those local seeds out of commission and replacing them with these big blockbuster seeds, they called them, that could be grown across thousands of miles of and multiple ecological zones. How? With the support of chemicals that actually sustained what they did not have in their interior or genetic uh, uh, composition could be compensated for by the application of herbicides and pesticides on a massive scale. Mm -hmm. And so uh, where we've reached today in 2019 is we have 
more than half of all commercially traded seeds are controlled by three companies. Three. And one is called is Dow and DuPont, huge chemical companies that merged to create a merged seed enterprise. Two is Monsanto, which as you are familiar with, you're certainly familiar with the name, which was recently absorbed by Bayer, which was the biggest chemical company in Germany. Um, and also Syngenta, a Swiss seed, co seed company that was purchased by ChemChina, which is the biggest chemical company in China. Why is that significant? Because those three companies have one thing in common. They're all primarily chemical companies. So they've been breeding seeds that actually are totally dependent on chemicals. And I call them in my book, I call them the crack baby seeds. Mm -hmm. They're born completely dependent and hooked on chemicals to survive. And so that matters on a number of different levels, it seems to me. One is the incredible public health consequences of having chemical, chemically dependent seeds. And though moving outward from there is the question of what that means for adaptability to climatic shifts. But the overall ecological impact, aside from the public health consequences of uh, all these chemicals, is that right at the moment, as we reach more and more extreme climatic disruptions, right at this particular time, the, uh, we're having a diminishment of seed biodiversity at just the moment when we need more and more and more diversity to respond to these changes. Mm -hmm. And that's why what is happening is actually very significant. I tried to write a book without dealing with Monsanto, but I couldn't. Um, <laughs> you can't write an entire book about seeds without. But I, I asked a representative of the company, I said, so what is the company doing to breed seeds that are deal with climatic changes? And you know, Monsanto knows climate change is happening. These are not denialists. They, they, they understand. They work with the land. When I asked this question about climate change, one was they were the, we were at the March for Science, and um, two was we are endeavoring to come up with ways to separate the seed from the environment where it grows. And I was like, wow, that is incredible. In one sentence, um, you have captured the essential paradigm of industrial agriculture. So if you think about what the chemical seed combines are doing, they're trying to actually create a alternative environment created by chemicals and genetic engineering that bears no relationship with the conditions that are actually occurring in the fields, right. which is going to and already is creating incredibly more and more brittle uh, conditions in the fields that are far more uh, vulnerable to climatic changes and are completely counter to what people like Kristen and people all over this country are trying to do to counter those trends. Right, so and the problem with that, like, well, as you mentioned, there's a brittle earth and there's also mm -hmm. agrochemical exposure, which has been linked to cancer and um, developmental delays in children and so many other harmful health effects. Um, Kristen, did you have anything that you wanted to? Well, yeah, I mean, I think you in your book, you know, refer to the fact that the Diamond versus Jacobardi case was really this watershed moment that established the grounds for the notion of intellectual property mm -hmm. yes, to exist yeah. and yeah. apply oh, to yeah. the life mm -hmm. in a seed. And I think that that, you know, is when you saw this sort of rush on small seed companies, you saw all these agrochemical businesses mm -hmm. getting into that game, into something, an industry they had prior no right, real that, interest yeah. into, because <laughs> right. why would they, mm -hmm. you know? But it's essentially because it let seed be this kind of Trojan horse to implement like this different kind of farming system and regiment. 
And I think it also just like perpetuated like this really colonist worldview of you can own that life, you can own those genetics. But I would say like to just make it not feel like we're just up against this evil kraken of a monster, you know, like which it certainly feels like. There is just like even scientifically a short-sightedness to their strategy. So like Monsanto, I researched their, you know, breeding for drought tolerance. And it mostly focuses on one particular genetic code that helps support RNA transfer during periods of dryness, because that's really where the type of wilting and uh, death comes from in prolonged periods of drought. So they focus on like one sequence within a huge genome for something like corn. And I think even you look at like the Union of Concerned Scientists and they've said like this is really unsound to just sort of remove the seed and these traits that you're promoting out of any sort of agronomic context of being like, well, yeah, Hopi farmers could tell you how to you know, develop drought resistance in corn because they've been doing it for centuries, but you're plugging a lot of capital and research and development into like isolating the one little bundle instead of like how things kind of work in concert. And I think that as much as, you know, they really have the upper hand in this way, it's only because of this very precarious system that like keeps that afloat, like the money that goes to all the different arms to keep that system afloat. But in terms of like, yeah, going back to this notion of resilience, that's what I feel like I hold on to as a small farmer, just being like, oh, but we're farming in a way that like adheres to and has reverence for this deeper kind of intelligence. And I think as things kind of worsen, the more we can kind of dig our heels in and not feel discouraged of what we're up against, but just keep kind of building power with one another and in coalition, it actually is just way more sound. And our regional farming systems, if we like share resources and find ways to cooperate, will actually kind of outlast these other farming systems. So there's this common narrative that says that we need modified seeds to feed the world. What are your thoughts on that? (laughs) So, I mean, genetic engineering Number one is part of this effort to kind of separate the seed from its surroundings mm-hmm. by manipulating the internal uh, genome of plants to actually express one particular characteristic, and which very often the engineered characteristic is completely reliant on a particular herbicide or, or pesticide to that's, that's Roundup, of course, which we're hearing a lot about these days the genetically engineered soybean is genetically engineered to be resistant to Roundup. So therefore, you can blast Roundup on everything else. Everything dies except for your soybean plant. So genetic engineering contributed to the accelerating pace of patenting, which you were talking about. And basically, genetic engineering enabled companies to literally put their brand at the molecular level in a plant and thereby go patent those traits and, and thereby assert legal dominion over those traits. So they've actually led to many, many other seeds being kind of shoved off the market and, mm-hmm. and have rid- led directly to the rise of the big agrochemical companies um, to dominate um, the market. And I think they have accelerated the concentration of the industry in very dangerous ways. I think there are a huge array of ecological reasons they separate the seed from the environment, and they're being shown to be extremely brittle. Right. They, are, they are not responding well to the changing conditions. Yields have been falling. Yields have been falling. So there's no, there's no longer the yield bonus that they argued in the, at least in the initial years of the GMOs. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you can look at this point, we have enough history behind us to kind of see outcomes of things like the Green Revolution and like how that contrasts with the dismantling of traditional farming systems and have people actually experience less hunger because of it. Mm -hmm. And I think clearly the answer is like no, especially considering where most of these genetically engineered crops are like going in this food pipeline. It's not necessarily just to sustain people. But yeah, even thinking about somewhere like Korea, you know, I visited there several years ago to talk to farmers and seed activists, and nothing has really, really wedged itself into regional food self-sufficiency, like the introduction of not necessarily genetically engineered crops, but this sort of multinational interest in controlling the seed supply. Mm -hmm. And trade liberalization. So those things kind of going hand in hand. It's like food doesn't exist in a vacuum and we're not just talking about the patent of those genetics, we're talking about just the privatization of like our world in general. And so I think it is just really particularly devastating because it's winnowing that genetic material. And it also just personally, I get really frustrated because soybean is one of my favorite crops. It's just one of my favorite plants. I'm like, it just gets shit on so much, like rightfully so. But now it's just like the poster child for glyphosate. And it's, you know, this evil thing. And it's the monocultures in the Midwest. And I'm like, it's also this incredibly beautiful plant that was one of the first cultivated crops in many parts of East Asia. It, you know, is completely, like, built up a food culture around it for all the different things that it could make. There's, like, thousands of different either cultivated or crop-wild relatives throughout all of Asia. And it produces all these enzymes that our body can't make on its own. It's super nutritious. It's great in your crop rotation. It's really nutritious for your farming system. And so for it to be reduced down to this, you know, villain in the food movement... I just get frustrated, like, hey, that's my friend, you know, like, you're just making it into this beast. Sounds like you want to reclaim the soybean. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Exactly. So Karen Washington, who is this amazing farmer and activist, says, um, we don't own the land. We don't own seeds. We don't own anything. What we do own is the ability to share. Kristen, can you talk a little bit about the relationship between sharing and seed saving? Yeah, I mean, nothing has taught me generosity in the way that seed saving has, because it really is just like those soybeans, when I met with these different farmers, they trusted me with a small handful of them. Like I got a couple varieties, but had no more than 20 of each kind. And that year growing them on my farm that first time was so nerve wracking. I just was just really too stressed out for 160 days, you know, like it's a super long season crop, didn't make any sense when I was in a bad mood and just someone wanted to go get a beer and I'm just like crying about soybeans. It's like irrational <laughs> to most normal people. But it's just like within a short period of time, like each one of those one plants from that one seed is like returning your care and your devotion like thousandfold basically. And so even last year when I pretty much lost my soybean crop to watership down rabbit situation in my farm, um, there's still just like that concept of enough. And I think that just undermining the sort of culture and paradigm of scarcity that I think capitalism has taught us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's something that like, you know, you see it saturated in the air you breathe in this certain way. Mm-hmm. And to just see something demonstrating and like showing you something completely opposite of that is really compelling. Nice. So it sounds like every time you plant a seed and when it grows, it's giving you hope. 
and anxiety and anxiety yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a double-edged sword and it was, yeah. uh, mark what would you say as you've been researching seeds and going about this work what has been giving you hope or has been like making you feel more resilient so there's this whole proliferation of kind of from the local level, like seed libraries, which some of you might be familiar with, but hundreds of seed libraries have suddenly popped up across the country. Seed exchanges happening all over this state and around the uh, around the country and around the world. New seed companies popping up in precedent array. You're involved with <laughs> at yeah. least one of them, <laughs> and that um, that actually go back to some of these uh, essential principles of growing seed. I was talking to the Organic Seed Association, um, and they've never seen this so much of a growth in organic seed wow. um, uh, companies, which are developing seeds that are come from particular ecological regions. And the other thing that was very interesting, and I really was super eye-opening to me, was to realize how much traditional, I use Western scientists and farmers were opening themselves up to Native American communities in this country, but also similarly uh, around the world, when they suddenly realized, you know, that basically like Native Americans have been growing food, for example, in the Southwest, uh, been growing food for several thousand years, um, and had figured out exactly what you said, how to grow food in, in, in highly stressed circumstances. So that was pretty, uh, that was, that, uh, so there's a lot of actually areas of hope in this universe of people doing this very important work and sort of trying to both go back to basic principles but also apply kind of modern botanical ideas which <laughs> to kind of old ideas of how plants perform in kind of stress circumstances. Final question for me for the evening. I love music a lot and think about how music moves people and so I've been curious lately about um, if our work had a soundtrack, what would one of the songs be? So, Mark, if your work had a soundtrack, what would one of the songs be? <laughs> Tiffany, I can't believe it. This is like my favorite question in the universe. Because uh, <laughs> um, I was trying to debate. I was kind of like, how can I bring seeds? How can I make them, you know, how can I make them, you know, real in a sense to, um, to readers? And I suddenly, and I, you know, I'm a kind of an amateur musician and stuff. And I, um, and I thought, they're like music, actually. The, that different seeds, different, different musical, I, I heard this story when I was actually in, uh, in, in Hawaii about um, how um, Hawaiian musicians influenced American blues players and the Hawaiian guitar influenced American blues players. And why? Because Hawaiian, uh, in the 40s and 50s, and the insanity days of Jim Crow and all that, the Hawaiian musicians would come to America, they'd go to the South, they'd play Hawaiian guitar, and then they would be in, compelled to stay in the same hotels as the black musicians, who were also forced to stay in the same hotels, and these guys would jam together. And so in this way, black American musicians were, were, were connected to Hawaiian guitar players, which I thought was a wonderful story. I would say that my, my soundtrack for this book and for thinking about seeds is called Talking Timbuktu, and it's an album. <laughs> you know it. Yay! Fry Cooter. Yes.
Marissa well, it's Ry Cooter <laughs> and Ali Farkaturi. So, so these two fantastic musicians from completely different parts of the earth. And he ended up connecting with Ry Cooter, who's this fantastic, great blues guitar, another kind of player. And they did this album together. And they recorded it in Timbuktu, which is the capital of Mali. And it is an incredible mix of African music via Ali Farkaturi playing with these deep blues riffs coming from Ry Cooter. And, um, and when I think of that record, I think of Seeds. Because that's what happens when Seeds come from other parts of the world, when they come from other... Um, areas and they carry particular characteristics with them. I write in the book about seeds from Syria, how they're actually building up uh, American agriculture that's facing climatic stresses. And all these seeds from different parts of the world come in and they influence and they change the genetic composition in a very, in, in, in new ways. And um, they are, in a sense, it's like music and it's a little bit <laughs> like talking Timbuktu. An amazing music historian. Well. <laughs> yeah, I love. Um, well, I think the first thing that came to mind was just that there's this really old, one of the oldest types of folk music in Korea is actually a style of drumming that was used and really tied to agricultural ritual and practices. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, a really amazing musician, Dohee Lee, who does a lot of, um, just like helps facilitate different types of ceremonies on the farm. And she composes music for, uh, you know, a group of drummers to do every year. And a lot of it is just about, you know, oh, this rhythm is like, yeah, telling seeds how to like nestle in the soil. And this one is like mm -hmm. imitating the sound of rain falling on soil. And this one is like when the seed first comes out. And it's all really tied to this traditional music. Um, so that always feels very stirring. Like whenever the drummers kind of come out onto the farm, uh, it's always really amazing. There's like a group in the bay called Iumse and mm -hmm. you know they you can usually see them at protests yeah. but to see it on land like surrounded by these plants like it really is pretty powerful but I will confess too that in the beginning of my farm I just like really loved Frank Ocean's album nice. I listen to it all the time <laughs> and that song thinking about you I will not recite it but basically the chorus is about thinking about forever mm -hmm. I was like I'm not going to go full on dorkball dad joke and like make you hear me talk about Frank Ocean. But I did think about that song a lot because um, it one just got stuck in my head all the time but I was like oh I could kind of imagine like I'm seating in the greenhouse and that was like the song that just kept playing of just being like oh this is what we're all thinking about right now. Awesome thank you. This has been another episode of Real Food Reads. Special thanks to James Rollins, our sound maestro here today, and a big thank you to our friends at Quesa and the San Francisco Ferry Building. Look for this episode and other episodes of Real Food Reads on iTunes or SoundCloud.